while we're talking about a vision of, of growing into what Christ wants us to be, why, why would we yield ourselves in this way to be clay in the potter's hands, found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing for his work? Because he has shown the greatest of all loves for us. Love came down in the person of Jesus Christ to win us back from the dead, from eternal condemnation, from all of our sins, all of our trespasses, all of our wrongs, all the junk that we bring. God sent Jesus to take it all upon himself so that we could have eternal life. And so we yield ourselves prepared and ready to live for him. That's what we're talking about in this vision. You know, my family and I had a little bit of an interesting experience this past week in that we got a new dog, all right? A new little puppy dog. He's a schnauzer, a little, little black schnauzer puppy dog. He weighs, what, about three pounds, Amy, something around there? Four pounds, four pounds soaking wet, all right? So just a tiny little dog. And, and we had to go through the experience of naming this dog. <clears throat> we came up with this healthy list of names well really I came up with a healthy list of names and the family continued to mark those off all right until we got down to you know everybody kind of had their favorites there were some that came in from the peanut gallery but but ultimately we came down to this final list that we we're going to evaluate these are our potential names for new little puppy schnauzer all right and we just could not settle on one of those I mean, we each had a favorite, and finally we came to the point where we were calling the dog, everybody was calling the dog a different name. And so we said, all right, in the name of democracy, it's 4th of July week, let's put this out for a vote, all right? So we put it out on Facebook, each one of us picked a favorite, and out of the options, uh, the one that was chosen was Barker, Barker Parker, all right? And everybody seems to like that has a particular sort of ring. Now, now, that was over, so we tried to make these names kind of specific to our family, things that would kind of have a ring, some sort of theme that would go along with our family. So, for example, my wife's favorite name was Aslan. Aslan, of course, being the, the lion that represents Jesus from the, the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's classic trilogy. And, uh, and then my son had one, so, you know, I'm, I'm bivocationally a web developer, so Browser was another name that we had on that list, and Micah just really took Browser as a favorite name of his because, you know, it kind of captures the essence of working as a web developer within a browser all day, but also just, you know, the dog's going to be browsing around, right? And, and then Ellie had Barker as her favorite, and so ultimately... Ellie's vote won the day, but there were some other good options out there, and I thought I would just mention these for all of you. This would be my gift to you all. You can use these names, okay? You're welcome to use them. I have no specific ties to them. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you use these names, okay? Uh, so there were some that were really kind of biblical character names, you know, being in a, in a Christian home. We had some, some names like Titus and Silas that we thought would make good, good strong dog names. There were others that kind of went with that technology side of, of what I do, like laptop. I mean, come on. A dog's going to be on your lap, right? I mean, laptop, uh, family voted it down. But there's another good option. Goober is another name that my wife tends to call me in my rarest moments. But yeah, Goober was another potential name we had for the dog. I, you know, we, we live in a gluten-free household because my, my son and I are, are uh, going through an adjustment to celiac disease. And so... Uh, we thought about naming the dog Gluten, so we couldn't say it was gluten-free anymore because, you know, Gluten, the dog, would still be there, but voted down on that one, too. Another one would be Preacher. I mean, Preacher Parker. That way, if somebody called and said they wanted to speak to Preacher Parker, I could just hand the phone over to the dog, right? 
or to go with the technology angle of really kind of, you know, we're, we're a social media enabled sort of family. I still don't get Instagram. I really don't know what they're doing with that thing, but still, we're ultimately social, social media oriented. So I thought about selfie as a potential dog name or hashtag. I mean, I thought hashtag would really be a good one that would go over well. Or, or really even keeping with this theme of what we've been talking about in our new vision for new vision, I had Potter as an idea. And, you know, we could even call him Harry Potter. But still, <laughs> H-A-I-R-Y. But that, that got voted down as well. But the, the essence was, as I was calling these names out, the, the kids were having an issue with any name that really described something that an animal would be doing as opposed to like a proper name, right? Like a, like a name that you would actually name your child. And they really didn't want to go through this process of naming a dog something that a dog would be doing as opposed to the sort of name that you would expect, maybe even naming your own child. And you know, I think there's a little bit of a tie here with the way that we as Christians tend to refer to ourselves and the titles that we use for ourselves because by far the most common term to use, used to refer to those who are following Jesus as we get into the New Testament is this word, disciple. And, and it's a word which conveys a meaning of what we ought to be doing as we follow the Lord Jesus. Now, a disciple is really just someone who is, who is committed to a particular discipline. They've got some particular discipline they've committed themselves to. They're going to be a follower of that discipline. And so when we think about that in the context of Christianity, a disciple is someone who has been saved by Jesus Christ and who is committed to following him. And, and I think that there's a little bit of a reluctance in our day and age to refer to ourselves as disciples because that's a word that conveys meaning about what we're going to be doing in this all-out sort of pursuit of Jesus. And so we tend to prefer words like Christian, which ultimately means a little Christ and has some pretty strong imagery within it. But in our society, it's so watered down, we're okay to call ourselves Christians or maybe just believers when the reality is that there's something so much more rich in what Christ calls us to, when he calls us to go and make disciples. And in the process of that, so many of you have become disciples as you've trusted in the Lord Jesus. And so we've, we've been working through this new vision for new vision. It, it's a way of conveying that we're on this path of discipleship. We're on this progression of following Jesus because we've been saved by Jesus. And so we want everyone who's engaged in this church, everyone whom we come in contact with, as many as Christ would allow to be multiplied in these ways, to be found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing, just as pottery in the potter's hands. And today we're specifically getting to the last stage of that as we talk about maturity, moving up from being found and, and invited to encounter God here and, and being formed into a new vessel by his transforming power, being fired into a committed vessel that is ready for his use, being filled with grace and truth for his glory. Now we come to this final stage that we, we really started out on last Sunday, but the ultimate goal, the ultimate maturity that we are striving for, that the end point, really, really the beginning of life from that point on, that we are striving to convey through this vision is that we want every individual whom we encounter, that as many as Christ would allow, would through this fellowship, would be flowing God's riches into the lives of others. 
And our brother even talked about this in our prayer here this morning, that we would be a church of disciples who make disciples. This, this outward flowing element that we are going to be making other disciples for King Jesus because that's ultimately what we find Jesus did with those who carried this title that he now commands for each one of us to live out. And so we're specifically talking now about moving from being commissioned in the sense that we found some ministry purpose for the Lord Jesus to being a carrier of those riches, of what has been poured into us, carrying that to a world that is so desperately in need of it. We've talked about how we're multiplying God's glory on the earth in each one of these ways, through some way, some means. But here in particular, we were multiplying God's glory on the earth by multiplying missionaries of God's gospel. We'll know that we as a church are successful when we see that individuals are departing from this place on mission for the cause of the gospel that has saved us and redeemed us and made us new. So the ultimate goal, and and hopefully what you'll see as we look at this as the ultimate maturity level of where we are striving to go as a church is that we would desire that all of you would not just become disciples of Jesus Christ, but that you would become disciple makers for Jesus Christ. And so last time we talked about how until you're living your life on mission, you're still in transition as far as this, this, this series, this vision that we have going forward goes. And we are striving for this maturity, a sort of maturity that ultimately we see in the disciples of Jesus as they spent with him three years here in personal, intense, confrontational, change my worldview sort of discipleship with the master on earth. Three years they walked with Jesus. Three years they saw him healing individuals. Three years they heard him preaching the truth. Three years they had him commanding and giving instruction and correcting their wrong thoughts. For three years they were committed to true discipleship. And when we come to Matthew chapter 28... When we come to the Great Commission, which has been the foundation of so much of what we've been talking about, please find your way there if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with us here today. When we come to Matthew 28, the disciples have reached maximum maturity. That they found themselves at the pinnacle of what Jesus is preparing them to do. And at the end of three years of being with them here on the earth, what is it that he commands them to do? He commands them to go. He commands them to go. And there is this understanding that we're going to come to through Scripture if we study what Jesus has done with his disciples, where where we cannot understand what it means to be a disciple without understanding that the call is to eventually be prepared to go, to be on mission, to be living for his purposes and for his glory. And that's ultimately what we find in Matthew 28. We've looked at this passage many times as we've been through this mission because this is ultimately what Jesus has laid out for us as his mission for the church. What are we supposed to be doing? Beginning in verse 18 of Matthew 28, we read, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go! There's that word, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The main thing I want you to come away with here today, if you don't come away with anything else, is this. Mature disciples go. Mature disciples go. When we grow to a maturity in Christ, the ultimate ambition is for us to go out and to take what has been poured into us, what we've been filled with, and to use that for God's glory to proclaim His name on the earth, to maximize His glory, which is the glory. When we talk about that word, we're just talking about the weight of who He is, the brilliance of His character, the awesomeness of all that He has done for us. What we find here is that once Jesus had, had trained his disciples up in following him and observing his commandments, he then called for them to go and make disciples themselves, to go and reproduce themselves, to go and to multiply themselves. So Jesus calls for his disciples to go and to make disciples. And that is what happens ultimately when they go. When they go for him, disciples are indeed made. And I've just got to say that we most effectively make disciples, my friends, when we go. We make disciples most effectively when we go. Now, we can have a great inviting sort of strategy. We can have a great music plan. We can have some great, you know, environment in here that would really draw a crowd. And we'll see some disciples made over time through that. That's not a bad thing. But ultimately, we'll be most effective not when we are seeking to let the community come to us, but when we take the gospel to them. Then we will see multiplication. Then we will see disciples made in a greater sort of way. And mature disciples don't just keep getting filled up for the purposes of being filled. They go so that they can share the riches that have been placed within them by others. And my friends, as we gather here on this morning now, 2,000 years since, around 2,000 years since the first disciples were, were called to go, I want to emphasize for you this truth. Mature disciples go. Going is not an option for those who hear what Jesus is calling us to do. It's not an option for those who really just don't like to go where they're normally going, so they decide to go somewhere else. In fact, you could say, that Jesus expects mature disciples to live all of their lives on mission. Because for mature disciples, going becomes a way of life. And so I want to ask you as we gather here this morning, as we talked about this wonderful love that Christ has poured into us, I want, I want to ask you this question. Are you going for Jesus? Are you living your life on mission for Him? Are you a mature disciple who's going out into the darkness to share the light of Christ? And if you need some convincing, I just want to tell you that this message today is for you. Because I think we all need some convincing oh, along these lines from time to time. And if you need some convincing... That's what we find here as God shows us through his word. And so I want to share with you as we walk through just some facets of this passage here today, six truths mature disciples know that must compel us to go. Let me say that again. Six truths that mature disciples know that must compel us to go. 
The first is this. Mature disciples know that Jesus reigns over all. Jesus reigns over all. Before Jesus tells his disciples to go in Matthew 28 through this Great Commission passage, he first tells them about the extent and the domain of his authority. In fact, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, what's the extent of Jesus' authority if these words are true? All authority has been given to him. That means there's no greater source of instruction for those of us who, is, who believe that he is the truth, the way, and the life. And the disciples knew this. The disciples knew that Jesus was the ultimate authority. How did they know that? Because they had seen him walk among them. They had seen him conquer death like no one else in history ever had. They had seen Jesus risen from the grave as this powerful testimony to his authority, his power, his right to speak to the need of their lives and the direction that they ought to go to. And Jesus has authority. And he's used that authority, my friends, for a specific reason. He used that authority so that he could win you back. He used that authority and yielded himself to the authorities in his perfect righteousness, in his sinlessness. Jesus shed his blood to buy you back from the grave. Jesus has authority, but he used that authority to win you to himself. What an awesome Savior we have that would give of himself, that would give of his great authority so that he could win us back. And Jesus has authorized us to go and to make disciples of all the nations. He has the authority to authorize us for this task. He has all authority. But Jesus also gives us the domain of his authority here. If he only had authority over heaven, for example, then perhaps we could say, well, I'm free to kind of figure it out here on earth until Jesus comes again and takes me to heaven to live with him. But that won't do. Why? Because Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 28, 18 that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. How does this truth then compel us, those of us who know him, to go? Because we know that there is no place on earth that we could go that is free from his control. Or to say that another way, any place that you can go is within the control of the Lord Jesus. It's within his domain. And when he compels us to go, he's sending us onto his turf, the place where he has authority, the place where he ultimately reigns. And though the powers of darkness may be great, and we see that they're great in Scripture and some of the ways that the powers of darkness work, they still cannot compare with the one who holds all authority. And that's what Jesus holds. And so the question is, are you granting Jesus authority over your life? Because with his authority, Jesus commands us to give everything for him to yield everything that is within us, everything that is in our control to him. Listen to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. In Mark 8, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That is a call, my friends, to give everything. That is a tough call from someone who has all authority. And the ultimate call that we see here is a call to lose your life. And so you and I must realize that being a disciple is an all-out call to yield everything in subjection to the one who reigns over all. And the accurate testimony of any true disciple is this. I've already lost my life to gain something so much greater in Christ. And I am willing and ready and actively seeking to go away from that which is familiar and comfortable because I believe that in my going, I am entrusting my life to one who has better things in store for me. I I lose my life because that's how I have already gained eternal life. Jesus is my life at this point. And we go, but because we're not ashamed of the one who is in charge of us. Mature disciples know that Jesus is in charge. They know that Jesus reigns over all. But secondly, mature disciples know that Jesus commands us to go. The first word of the Great Commission is often the most neglected word of the Great Commission because Jesus calls us to go. And a mature disciple will come to realize that Jesus' ultimate objective for us is to be flowing his riches into the lives of others. He expects every disciple to be living a life of discipleship on mission. And truly, every call we make for others to come to Jesus ought to be followed with a call for them to go for Jesus. Because that's his intent for each one of us. And did you know that that the Bible calls for us as a church to send out others on mission for Jesus? Romans chapter 10. If you want to find your way there, you're welcome to. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Is what the Apostle Paul has to say. Wonderful truth starts out that we love to cling to. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an ironclad truth, my friends. Verse 14 then says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so we need to ask ourselves this simple diagnostic question. Are there individuals who need to be saved in our world? And the answer is obviously yes. The International Mission Board gives statistics that say that over 2.8 million people in the world right now have no knowledge of the gospel. And every second, as we talked about last Sunday, lost people are plunging into an eternal hell with no one teaching them how they can be saved. How they can go to heaven. How Jesus has paid 
the price for their sins. How Jesus wants to win them back. I just got to ask, if, if we're not going to then, why are we not going to then? If we're not going to them, then we need a really good reason to explain why we are not going to those 2.8 million individuals. Because Christ has commanded us to do this very thing. And so I'm resolved that we as a church must make up our minds to be just as focused on how many people we're sending as we are on how many people we are seeding. Because we tend as church to kind of put together these statistics that talk about how many people are gathering here on Sunday mornings. And that's a great statistic to have. It's great to know if we're growing. It's great to know how many people are under the influence of the gospel because of the work that we're doing. We can really gauge some levels, some metrics of our success through that. But just as important, probably even more so important, is how many people are we sending? How many of these chairs are we emptying out for the purposes of the gospel so that God's glory would be multiplied on the earth? And that's what Christ is calling us to do here. And so we've got to ask, why are we not going? Why are we not hearing weekly testimonies of, of how your friends and neighbors have been battling with these struggles and have heard the good news of the gospel and now are struggling with the knowledge that Jesus is calling them and, and yearning to go to him? Why are we not hearing weekly testimonies of how individuals from this place have gone to the nations to tell of his glory and are seeing the fruit of one who has all authority where they are. Why are we not going? Is it because we've got better things to do? On August the 8th, 2009, there was a tragedy on the Hudson River when a distracted air traffic controller neglected to prevent this deadly mid-air collision. Audio tapes which were released later revealed that this tour helicopter and a, and a small plane which collided, leaving nine people dead, that their collision occurred while this air traffic controller was on the phone joking with his female friend. He was unaware of the impending disaster until controllers, another controller, alerted him about it. And so he quickly hung up the phone just four seconds before the time of collision. The tapes revealed. But it was too late. All nine people in the air were killed. And sadly, the controller's recorded phone conversation was nothing more than a silly discussion about roadkill near the New Jersey airport where his female friend worked. We hear a story like that, and we think, what a lousy guy. I mean, come on, you've got a job to do, man. You got something you're supposed to be taking care of. These people are in your charge, right? I mean, that's what we tend to look at that and say. But the reality is that the spiritual well-being of so many individuals around us hangs in the balance. We ourselves, in the midst of that, are wrapped up in these trivial pursuits that leave us distracted and disinterested in those who desperately need our attention and our help. And too many churches are wrapped up with keeping the lights on. When I would say that more churches need to be concerned with getting the light out. Including our church. Thirdly, mature disciples know that Jesus commands us to make disciples. The other verb, and really the primary verb of the Great Commission, is this command to make disciples of all the nations. 
wrapped up in, or the, in, in this phrase of making disciples are the subclauses of baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we, we either get the impression that making disciples is the thing that we need to do, or sometimes we kind of get the, the other edge of that perspective. We get things a little bit out of whack, and we think that, that going is the thing that we need to do. There's two verbs that are really used in this great commission, command. And I think churches sometimes get out of whack on either side of that. Sometimes we, we, we just focus on the going, and we send individuals out, and we make converts for Christ, but we never show them how to become disciples, how to get plugged into a body, this vital body of the church that builds you up. We never show them how to be disciple makers themselves. Or we go on the other end of the perspective when we just focus on the make disciples element of the Great Commission and we, and we just kind of keep folks here. We never go anywhere else, but we're, we're enriching them with the truths of the gospel. We're seeing them be disciples of Christ. We're seeing them grow in Him. We're seeing them be filled up with His riches. But we're never going and using those for his glory and there's a certain degree to which i believe that all of missions should have this ambition of seeing individuals made into disciples and ultimately that's kind of fleshed out in this idea of planting churches i mean when we take the gospel to a new place if we have the opportunity to share the gospel in a new area and there are converts those converts then need the lifeline that you guys are leaning on right now right they need a church. And so a big part of this element of going and multiplying God's glory on the earth is planting churches. I'm not saying that you shouldn't share the gospel with a friend or a child in East Asia that, that doesn't have a church that they can get plugged into thereafter. But what I am saying is that we need to do all that we can to help individuals find this full call of Christianity to be disciples. And that will most naturally happen as we encourage individuals to become a part of the body that Christ has established here on the earth to be his bride forevermore. And that is the church. And so every Christian needs a church. This is God's instrument for training individuals up for effective ministry. And the church is a disciple-making entity. But I wonder how many of you may not be in church right now if this, if this church just didn't exist, right? If there wasn't something on the corner, maybe you came from a place that fell apart, or maybe you just happened to wander by, or you saw the sign week in, week out, or you had somebody who was a friend who invited you to come to this place. I wonder how many of you just would not be in church if there wasn't a church here. You know, we kind of have the same mentality. If there, if there are mul multiple individuals who would have that mentality here, could there be multiple individuals in some other area? of our state, some other area of our community, some other area around us where that is true as well, where there are not, where individuals are not plugged into a body called the church because there's not a church there to encounter them, to lead them, to guide them in these truths. And the sad reality is that there need to be more churches. As a matter of fact, there are, many, there, there are so many more churches that are dying than churches that are being planted in our day and age. And that's not always a bad thing. Uh, just, just hear me out on this. That's kind of a tough sort of thing to say, right? I've, I've got a friend and a mentor, uh, Dr. Thane Barnes, who was my pastor before coming to this place. Uh, he told me that recently he was speaking with a couple about their church, and, and he's told me he's told this to multiple churches in the past, actually. That, that things just are not going well at the church, that things are really dwindling down, and he, he tells them that they need to have 
a funeral service for the church. Any of you ever been in a church that needed a funeral service? Oh, you don't want to own up to it because you know folks here in the community, I know, I got, I got all that sort of thing. I've been in churches like that in the past. I mean, churches where God's glory was really seen in the past, but now they're just trying to keep the bills paid. They're just trying to keep the doors open. And so many people are kind of wrapped up in this religious activity of keeping the doors open, and they never find their true vitality of walking with Christ, of being on mission for Him. And so we need planting healthy churches to be rising up all across this land to help fill that gap. The last thing the kingdom of God needs is a bunch of places of empty religious activity that do not inspire our spiritual productivity. And there's far too many churches that are wrapped up in this activity, wrapping up believers in this activity with no intention of advancing God's kingdom here on earth. And you know, I, I get the impression that we are a body that, that believes we are being fed. We, we believe that God's word is richly kind of flowing into our lives. And I see, I hear some of you saying, man, thank, thank you for preaching the word. Thank you for allowing God to feed me in this sort of way. But if we are being fed, my friends, then we need to be taking those resources and feeding others. Because this is ultimately God's call for us. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, this is what Paul wrote to Timothy, his young disciple in the faith. He said, these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see the multiplication model, right? Timothy had received these things from Paul. And now Paul is calling Timothy to entrust these to other faithful men who will then be able to continue the multiplication process of teaching others also. And that's the sort of model that we're talking about here in our Church, this is what we're talking about with our vision, that we want to see God's glory multiplied on the earth. Now, in my mind, I want to, like, have all of that detailed out in this strategy to say, all right, you take these steps, and you're going to get there, right? So I called and talked to our director of missions this past week at the Pilot Mountain Baptist Association. And in the midst of that conversation, I was hoping to get some of those strategy, right? After last week, some of you came to me and said, man, I really want to go and take a short-term mission trip. I really want to go to see what that's like. So I'm like, all right, let's find out a way to get that done, right? And so I call and talk to him, and, and ultimately he kind of guides me through this process to say that churches that he sees succeeding in our day are simply focusing on this single command, to make disciples who make disciples. And through that, he says that ultimately if you have that ambition to see other disciples made through your ministry, then you're going to find the ways to go. You're going to find the avenues for planning churches. You're going to find the avenues for going on international mission trips. Because ultimately, it's the ambition to make disciples who make disciples that leads to this success. And so mature disciples know that Jesus commands us to make disciples. Fourthly, mature disciples know that Jesus commands us to aim for all the nations. The target for Jesus' commands is to go and to make disciples and that target in Matthew 28 is clear. Who are we to go to? Who are we to make disciples of? He commands us to go and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnates, all the people groups. And on a day when many churches are sit here singing, God bless America, as a holdover from this Independence Day week, 
I want to call you to recognize that God has a heart for the world. God has a heart for all the nations. And I understand the mentality from a government perspective, where we are now in our, in our, in our current administration, that we want to put Americans first. America first is that common motto that we hear over and over again. And, and I can understand where a government would want that, governing itself. But from a church perspective, my friends, I want to tell you that for us who are in the church, it must always be Jesus first. And Jesus calls, to go, calls us to go to all the nations, my friends. And our American heritage, our prosperity, must never be seen as reasons for us to shut others out of the gospel. We who are American Christians have been richly blessed. As a matter of fact, you could say that we've been greatly filled with the riches of a prosperous nation. And I say, let's flow those riches out. Let's pour them out for the glory of God. And I want to clear up a misunderstanding that I've heard from some individuals as they've talked through this idea of going through the years. Some individuals get this misunderstanding from Acts 1, specifically Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, you can look with me at Acts chapter 1. This is really another recording of the Great Commission. So as Jesus is about to go into the ascension, as, as he disappears into the clouds, he has one final word to say to his disciples, and that's what he's speaking to them here as Luke begins his second book to the most excellent Theophilus. Starting in verse 4, we read, Gathering them together, he, that is Jesus, commanded them, that is his disciples, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's an original command to wait. But what happens in verse 6? So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs in which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Where? Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. It's just another parallel command where Jesus is telling us this very sort, same sort of thing, that we are to go and to be his witnesses. Now, some people read this passage and they come away with a misunderstanding that assumes that we don't need to go anywhere else. They say, we need to wait here. We need to win our Jerusalem before we move on to Judea and Samaria because that's kind of the metric that Jesus gives, right? He says, you'll be my witnesses in Judea, which is the city where they were, and then in Samaria, right? And, that, and that this is the area that's kind of outside of where they were, or, or actually it goes to Judah first. So you got Jerusalem as the city, then Judea, Judea, and then Samaria, which is a country kind of up north of that, and then to the utmost parts of the earth. And it's clear that from this passage, the first disciples had this waiting period where they were supposed to stay in a single city before they were going. But still, that waiting period for them came to an end. And it ended, not because all of Jerusalem was following Jesus, right? I think that's the mentality we get sometimes, like, well, we've got to keep reaching Madison until all of Madison is saved, and then we can move to those, those heretics over in Maidan, right? 
And so we think we've got to, we've got to do that. I mean, we can't focus on the ends of the earth right now. We haven't gotten the total gospel saturation of our Jerusalem. We haven't gotten the whole gospel saturation of our Judea. But that's just not what we see in the early church. It wasn't that everyone in Jerusalem came to know Christ. It was that the Holy Spirit came. There was persecution. They were driven out long before that city was taken for Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witness in the most remote parts of the earth. He doesn't say, be my witnesses in Jerusalem for 20 years or be my witnesses until all of Jerusalem is one. No, in the biblical testimony, when persecution struck, the church got to work and they went to the utmost parts of the earth. What does that mean for us? It means that we are called as a church right now to be his witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. We are called right now to multiply God's glory on the earth. That's not saying we're to neglect our home turf. But it is saying that we need to give attention to evangelisms here and missions there both at the same time. This is a call for all of us to live our life on mission in whatever context that we go to. And mature disciples know that Jesus commands us to aim for the nations. Fifthly, mature disciples know that Jesus goes with us. As Matthew 28 rounds up with Jesus' great commission for his disciples, he says, Lo, I am with you always. I am with you always. And my friends, I just want to tell you, if you know Jesus, you're never alone. If you know Jesus, you are never alone. If you go for Jesus, you will never go alone. Jesus is always with us, always. Do you believe that, my friends? Do you believe that Jesus is always with us? That's what he says here. This one who has all power and all authority on heaven and on earth, the one who commands us to go and to make disciples of all the nations, he is with us always. And this truth must compel us to go. For if Jesus is with us always, he'll never send us where he won't be with us. He'll never take us where he won't be there with us by his very presence and sharing with us his very authority. Robert Pepper, who is a physician and a missionary to West Africa, said this. He said, we are on a lifelong journey of replacing our fear of things with the fear of God. And if God's Son is with us always then we should be more willing to go than we would be willing to stay and let this fear that the things which might be there might harm us in some sort of way because mature disciples know that Jesus goes with us. Sixthly and lastly, mature disciples know that our time is limited. Jesus says in Matthew 28 that he is with us always even to the end of the age. The end of the age, we say. Well, what is this end of the age that you're talking about here, Jesus? What does that mean? It means that our time is limited, my friends. It means that Jesus is coming again in a very literal, physical return to take his bride, his church, back home. It means that the opportunity to win the nations to his salvation will not last forever. There is but a brief time my friends when we have the opportunity to fulfill this mission that he's called us to and you know it's often the cost that kind of keeps us from this sort of thing right we think about the nations we think about going and making disciples of all the nations we think man that's going to be an expensive call 
that's going to be an expensive plane ticket. Those accommodations are really going to cost a lot of money. And we start to evaluate all the costs that go along with going. But I've got to say, my friends, I can't help but think, and I want to encourage you to think of what is that accounting equation going to look like on the other side of the end of this age? What, what, is, what is our evaluation of the cost of going to the nations, going to look like when we are in the very presence of Jesus? When, when we are there with him as his bride and seeing his glory, are, are we going to be saying, man, I sure am glad I saved the cost of going on that trip? Or are we going to be saying, man, I wish I'd invested it all so that I could see those 2.8 billion people here multiply his glory forevermore with me. And that's a key question that each of us need to be asking ourselves. What's off the table for you? What is it that God can't put his hands on in your life? Because you're kind of huddled up to it. You're protecting it. What are you not willing to let go of? What, what is it that God's poured into you as he's filled you up that you're just kind of hiding away in this pocket so that it's not flowing out of you? What are your reasons for not going to your neighbor, for not going to the nations, for the glory of God who sends us to share with them the hope of the gospel? The reality is that the transportation has never been better than it is now. The, the, the organizations that are there and available to assist and to help you have never been more abundant than they are right now. The lodging and accommodations have never been better than they are right now. The communications to talk with your friends and family back home have never been better than they are at this moment. All of this is far greater today than it has been for the majority of the church's history. And so I think each of us need to come with this Humility just to ask. Would you have that humility, my friend, just to ask this question of God with an open heart, with a reality that you will really listen to what he says in response? Would you ask him, maybe sometime tonight, when you are alone and you've just got some time to reflect with God, would you ask him, Jesus, are you calling me to do this? Jesus, are you calling me to go to the nations? Jesus, are you calling me to share the gospel with someone that is either in a context that I already know about or a context in some foreign land? Would you ask him, and would you, and would you really, or maybe if you're even really feeling bold, you could ask this question. Because ultimately, I think what we see in Scripture is that the call is for each one of us to go. Ultimately, the command is that each one of us should be going. Maybe, but would you ask this question? Jesus, why should I stay? Like, what is my excuse authorized by you with all power and authority to stay here and not be one that is sent for your glory? Are you married? Maybe you could pray together with your spouse to say to the Lord, do you want us to go? And then have the, the humility, the willingness, the availability to say, Lord, whatever you answer, I am ready to respond to. Would you make that a humble prayer of your heart? This is not a side thing. This is the main thing that we are aiming for as a church. This will be maturity 
for us as a body, when we are a church on mission for God's glory, then we will have realized the potential of God's vision for us. And ultimately, we sang this song about how love came down. Love came down and rescued me. Love came down and set me free. Love came down on mission, my friends. You see, God didn't take his comforts of heaven and just use them for his own purposes. Instead, he sent the greatest of all of his possessions in his own dear son, his only son, his only begotten son, on a mission to win you back so that you would know this hope, that the one who has died in your place has paid your penalty, and he wants to win you back. We know a God who is on mission. You know, there have been times in my life when I've really just made a spur-of-the-moment sort of commitment that really drove me in my life after that point. I think of that, for example, in the time when I responded to the call to ministry. It was, it was a service kind of like this, where at the end of the service, you know, the, the pastor had preached a message about how you know, pastors need to be uh, called and preaching the Word of God. And ultimately, there was a guy who came up and led the invitation, and he said, I know there's a few of you here in this place who I can just sense God's hand on. I can sense that God is calling you to respond in this way. And I, I remember leaving a trail of tears as I responded in that moment of invitation to give that commitment to say that, Lord, I believe you're calling me in this way. And yet, I got to tell you, if it hadn't been for that sermon, that, that commitment, that, that message that was preached that day, I don't know that I would be here as your pastor today. But, but it was in that moment that I made that commitment because I felt God calling me in my heart. The commitment drove me to where I am now. Ultimately, it was God calling me into that commitment. Is God calling you into some commitment here today that you could give this visible portrayal of and give this encouragement of, give this, give this responsibility to yourself to say that God's calling me and I want you to hold me accountable as my church. I want you to hold me accountable as this body for Christ. That's why we share in these times of invitation. It's a time for you to make a commitment to let brothers and sisters rally around you and to support you. Is God calling you in some way to do this sort of thing today? Is he calling you to go? Then, my friends, I hope you'll be faithful to respond to his calling. Would you pray with me? Father, your calling for us is a drastic calling, especially for those of us who are in this American mentality of meeting our needs, of finding our comforts, of living it up here on earth. But God, we see in your word that you are a loving God. We see in your word that you've granted to us a Savior who has all authority. We see to it in this word, we see that Jesus has authority here on earth as well as in heaven. We see that Jesus goes with us. We see that Jesus calls us to go and to make disciples, God. And I think we've gotten too comfortable to answer that call. So, Father, I pray that you 